love how you all come to attention. Good to have you here. My name is Diane Darling, and I am pleased to welcome you here to Fayetteville Congregational Church, United Church of Christ, for the special weekend that we have planned with Dr. Marcus Borg. In this church, we believe and are trying to live out the belief that Christian education is a lifelong process, a lifelong process of growth, of growing in our relationship to God, of growing in love of neighbor, of growing in our understanding of the sacred stories and traditions that form us as a people. So this past year, the members of the Board of Christian Education and an adult education subcommittee put a lot of time into planning a whole year's worth of program for the adults in our church. And this weekend marks the culmination of all of that work. And I believe that it's a weekend like this, a time with a teacher like this, that offers us a remarkable opportunity to learn together, question together, think together, and grow together. You've been handed a bulletin um, with this, your schedule for the weekend, and there are people you'll see around with name tags who are here to answer any questions if you have them. And if one of those questions is about where the restrooms are, they are right here um, to my left, out in the hallway. There's a men's room and a woman's room. They only hold one at a time, so be patient, or women, if you need to, commandeer the men's room. Books by Marcus Borg and also one um, put out by the Jesus Seminar on the Five Gospels um, are available to be for sale throughout the weekend. So we are indeed very glad that you're here with us. We are also very glad that Marcus Borg is here with us. Dr. Borg is Professor of Religion and Culture at Oregon State University. And the registration brochure that you received and I'm sure looked at as you filled in your name and all the info to sign up for this tells you all a lot of stuff about his academic credentials and about his publications. And impressive as all of that is, we would not have flown him here from Oregon if that's all we had to say about him or all we know about him. We would not have brought him here if he were just another overly educated, erudite theologian. We would not. <clears throat> he's very expensive and he's getting more expensive all the time. <clears throat> we invited him here because Marcus Borg has a unique gift. He has a gift that's an ability to bridge the gap between the academy, between the world of theology and the world of the local church. He has a gift of bridging the gap between the study of religion and the everyday faith of people like you and me. Now, I don't understand at all how he does it so well, which is why I called it a gift. But I think one of the reasons he's so good at it is because in the midst of his hectic schedule of teaching, writing, speaking, preaching, he also does pew time. He worships as well as writes. He lives with an Episcopal priest who I'm sure certainly does her share of bringing him back down to earth when he may tend to soar. And he listens. If you've read his books, you know that he listens to his own life, 
He listens to our lives, to our questions, our doubts, our struggles to understand, and our attempts to express the faith we think we have in the God we think we know. And then he takes all this together, and he puts it together, combines it with the insights of contemporary biblical scholarship, and offers us a gift, a gift of a deeper understanding of this God who knows us through and through. Through the clarity of his last book, many of us got to meet Jesus again for the first time. This weekend, we get to meet God. Do not confuse Marcus with that God. But I, um, I think on behalf of all of us, can say that we indeed look forward to meeting that God through his insights, through his own sharings, and the words he has to share with us. And so, Marcus knowing that we will indeed be blessed by our time with you. I welcome you here to Sayville Report. Well, let me see if the microphone is working just fine. Uh, any of you in the back row want to shoot up a hand if you're not getting enough volume out of this? Uh, we can play with it, okay? Seeing no hands either means you can't hear me at all or that everything is fine. <coughs> well, I want to begin tonight with a number of thank yous. Uh, first of all, a thank you to Diane for that very uh, uh, nice and generous and flattering introduction and also to Diane for having invited me to do this weekend with you. Um, the primary reason I'm here is because of the connection I have with her going back to uh, three years ago when I was in her parish in Modesto, California. And um, as Diane knows, I get um, uh, maybe four or five times as many invitations as I can accept. And so when there is a personal connection like the one to Diane to be a motivating factor, that helps a great deal. So. I thank her for being the one who invited me. And I also want to thank the Christian Education Committee of this church for the work they have done putting the event together. And uh, finally, I also want to uh, thank Susan Kanegi, a member of this church who picked me up at the airport today. We share a common background in Oregon. I, in fact, uh, <clears throat> have met her mom. And it was nice to uh, um, share some Oregon stories on the drive in from Kennedy this afternoon. It, it's very nice to be here for a number of reasons. One is that I very much enjoy doing this kind of thing, namely speaking to groups of people about the work that I do as a religious scholar. And I especially value speaking in the context of the church, for I am also a Christian of a non-literalistic and non-exclusivistic kind. And thus, occasions like this enable me to bring together those two worlds in which I live, the world of religious scholarship and my own commitment as a Christian. Uh, moreover, I simply enjoy doing this kind of thing. My wife has sometimes said about me that I'm at my very best in front of a large group of people, which has always struck me as somewhat of a double-edged remark, but so it goes. And so I want to thank you all for being here, for I would feel rather silly doing this all by myself. Let me begin by just uh, finding out a little bit about you all. I'm going to ask you a series of questions uh, 
to which the appropriate response is a show of hands and you might find yourself raising your hand more than once i'm curious how many of you are part of this parish ok looks like almost half maybe half let me do a little checking of other denominations that might be represented here those of you in this parish will raise your hands again for this one presumably how many of you are UCC ok this parish plus a few more to check some other denominations how many of you are Episcopalian ok I can raise my hand on that one that's half a dozen of us Presbyterian ok a few of you three of you let's see Methodist ok another three or so uh, Roman Catholic, okay, a couple of you, welcome, uh, three of you, okay, good, uh, Lutheran, I can raise half a hand on Lutheran, uh, I'll always have two, two, okay, two and a half Lutherans, okay, um, let's see, um, uh, Quakers, Unitarians, okay, three Unitarians, great, and, um, I don't plan to cover all the denominations. Anybody here whose denomination I haven't mentioned that you'd like to call it out to see if there are others of you here? Okay, Dutch Reformed. Okay, we got one other Reformed. Okay. Oh, okay, a few more. Okay. Um, anybody else that uh, you want to check on? Yes. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, Jewish. Any, anybody else uh, Jewish? Okay. Um, Muslim? Buddhist? Okay, sometimes that happens too. Um, further question, and you might even raise your hand on this one even if you are um, loosely connected to a church. Bishop Spong of the Episcopal Church has coined the phrase the Church Alumni Association to identify people who grew up in the church uh, but are no longer part of a church but are kind of curious and maybe on the fringes. Anybody here from the Church Alumni Association? Okay, couple, couple, maybe four. Okay, good, good. Last question. How many of you are part of the same denomination now that you grew up in? Okay, that's interesting. Maybe uh, maybe 25%, something like that. Um, and uh, that's fairly typical, by the way. That figure usually comes out between 25% and 40% amongst the uh, audiences that I speak to, which suggests that there is a lot of shifting around and no longer a taken-for-grantedness that one will be what one was raised as. Well, a little bit more before I move into the evening, a word about format. I'm going to speak about 45 to 50 minutes, I would guess, in this opening lecture. And um, that will leave us roughly uh, half an hour for question and response time. And I want to underline that the Q&A time is my favorite time of the evening. I basically already know what I'm going to say, which you might be relieved to know. So if there's something fresh in the evening, it will come during the question and response time. So if questions occur to you or comments occur to you as I move through my talk, uh, make a note to yourself, whether written or otherwise and you'll have a chance uh, for that at the end of the evening, and we will uh, end the evening by, by 9 o'clock. 
One last uh, word about uh, format. I'm about to set my timer. Uh, I have a dual electronic countdown timer. It's one of the great inventions of this century. You may find me a little bit anal retentive with regard to time tonight and tomorrow. I made that remark in Seattle uh, last summer, and during the, uh, one of the coffee breaks, a man came up to me with his tablet in his hand and his pen poised with somewhat of an anxious look on his face, I felt, and he said, does anal retentive have a hyphen? And and <clears throat> and when I when I when I told that story uh, uh, somewhere this uh, this past winter, a voice called out from the audience, "No, but it should have a colon." <laughs> so let me move into my first talk then. The occasion of this set of lectures, both tonight and tomorrow, is the publication of my new book, The God We Never Knew. And in this introductory lecture tonight, I have a twofold purpose, and the lecture thus has two main parts. I want, first of all, to say something about why I wrote this book, and then to introduce you to one of its central themes, namely the importance of how we think about God. So let me move into part one, why I wrote it. I wrote it for both personal and vocational reasons. To say something about the personal reasons, this book comes out of my own personal religious journey. The question of God has been with me all of my life, from the unquestioning belief of childhood growing up in a Lutheran family in a Lutheran church in what was basically a Christian town in North Dakota. I don't think I knew anybody as a child who wasn't part of a church. In that sense, the world I grew up in was still the world of Christendom in a way. And in that context, uh, it was easy to take it for granted that, of course, um, my religious instruction was true and it concerned the most important thing in the world. And then my journey moved through adolescent doubt, which I've written about elsewhere, through young adult agnosticism and unbelief, to the place where I am now. And to anticipate that, the place where I am now is that I am persuaded that God or the sacred or the spirit, terms which I use synonymously and interchangeably, I am persuaded that God or the sacred is real and that our lives are profoundly shaped by our relationship to the sacred, whether we know that or not, believe that or not. So in terms of my own personal journey, the question of God has been the central religious question, indeed the central life question of my life. And in the book, I often speak autobiographically about my own journey. But I wrote this book for a second reason as well, namely for a vocational reason. And that vocational reason is grounded in a perception of our culture. Namely, I think there's a lot of uncertainty and perplexity about the notion of God in modern Western culture, including the United States. Now, given the results of the uh, Gallup poll, one might not think so. Uh, the Gallup poll for several decades has suggested that Americans um, 
consistently affirm that they believe in the existence of god that figure has been about ninety five percent a yes answer for the last thirty years and i don't know about before then but i'm sure it was just as high before then i find that to be an amazing figure by the way that ninety five percent of americans will say they believe in god especially since the corresponding figure in england according to karen armstrong is thirty five percent and in northern europe even lower but i think that the high percentage reflected in the gallup poll may actually obscure or cover over some doubts about the whole thing wade roof for example in his important study of the baby baby boomer generation a generation of seekers reports that fifty fifty percent of high school graduates and sixty five percent of people with some postgraduate education sometimes doubt the existence of god and finally yet one more reason for my thinking that there is some perplexity and uncertainty about god flows from my life on the road in settings like this until now when i've been on the road i've been lecturing primarily about the historical jesus and yet about half of the questions that i get in the question and response period really have more to do with the notion of god and either reflecting perplexity about it or uncertainty that the sacred is in fact a reality now i think that our uncertainty about god is part of a larger uncertainty namely it seems to me that over the last thirty to forty years an older understanding of christianity has come undone for large numbers of people in our culture although that older understanding which i will soon describe still works for millions of christians especially for our conservative and fundamentalist christian brothers and sisters there are millions of people in our culture some within mainline churches others within the church alumni association for whom it is no longer compelling or persuasive and uh, that's the group from which the mainline churches have traditionally drawn their members let me now describe that older understanding of christianity that i think has come undone and i will describe it with five adjectives and unpack each for a minute or two that older understanding was in harder softer forms first of all literalistic by that i mean there was a taken for grantedness that uh, the bible is to be understood literally um, in hard forms of course this is fundamentalism but in softer forms it's what many mainline christians believed until recently and still perhaps do believe to some extent or think they should in my own family for example we were never hung up on the genesis stories of creation we had no need to defend that it really happened in six days of twenty four hours each so that was never really an issue but we took it for granted that uh, jesus was of course born of a virgin and that the sea really did part in the exodus story uh... and it sort of seemed to us i think that if that wasn't the case then there were serious problems with scripture and the tradition that older understanding was secondly doctrinal again in both harder and softer forms in hard forms i suppose it would mean believing fairly literally all of the statements contained within the classic creeds of the christian church 
but in and in softer forms it might mean um, believing the most central ones okay and being a little bit loose perhaps with some of the others and that would include uh, statements like uh, the Trinity and that the second coming of Jesus would indeed happen someday thirdly that older understanding was moralistic by that I mean there was an emphasis on being good and trying to be good and what it meant to be good was to live in accord with the central ethical teachings of scripture they could be understood in a rather narrow form as a um, code of righteousness or in a somewhat broader form as following the golden rule or the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself but it was assumed that being Christian meant trying to follow uh, the moral teachings of the Bible. Fourth, that older understanding was exclusivistic, meaning that it was largely taken for granted amongst Christians that Christianity was the only way of salvation. In softer form, I suppose this would be uh, not being quite sure that that's the case, but feeling that if one was really a good Christian, one would believe that, because after all, that's what the tradition has said, and there are statements in Scripture to that effect. And fifth and finally, this older understanding was afterlife-oriented. Uh, it seemed that the whole purpose of being a Christian was about where will you spend eternity. And if you had been able to convince me when I was, say, 12 years old that there was no afterlife, I would have had absolutely no idea why one should be a Christian or why one should be religious at all. And if I had to put this older understanding of Christianity into a single sentence, it would go something like this. Believe now for the sake of salvation later, or the same thought expressed only slightly differently, be a Christian now for the sake of heaven later. Now, it is this understanding, it seems to me, that has come undone. And over that same period of time, the last 30 to 40 years, mainline denominations, as everybody knows, have suffered a serious decline in membership. And I think those two facts are related. It's because this is not self-evidently true in the minds of many people anymore. And thus it seems to me that a major theological task in our time, probably the single most important theological task, I think there are other tasks that are not theological that are equally important for the church, but I think the major theological task of our time is a revisioning of Christian theology at a very foundational level. And this book is my contribution to this task. In it, I seek to provide a revisioning of central Christian notions and of the Christian life itself. As I do so, I center on the topic of God. So all of that is why I wrote the book. I move now to part two of my talk tonight, which is uh, uh, something about the content of the book, but then also the central theme of this lecture. But to give you a brief roadmap of the book, by the way, I almost feel like I'm doing an infomercial, you know? And if you catch me uh, selling t-shirts or coffee mugs, uh, just kindly take me aside, okay? So I have a little bit of embarrassment about uh, talking this much about the book. 
But the book is divided into three parts, each described with a participial phrase, and maybe I am a bit anal retentive. The first part of the book is called Thinking About God, and that's what I'll be talking about tonight. The second part of the book is called Imaging God, including Jesus as the image of God, and that's what I'll be talking about tomorrow morning. And then the third part of the book is called Living with God, and that will be the topic tomorrow afternoon. <clears throat> the premise of the whole is very simply how we think about God matters. I don't think it matters to God. This isn't about getting it right. But it matters because it profoundly affects what we think the Christian life is about, and it matters because it profoundly affects whether or not God will seem real or quite unreal to us, plausible or highly implausible, distant or near, absent or present. And that leads me into tonight's topic, thinking about God, under the title, Meeting God Again from God Out There, to God right here. And that implicit contrast, God out there or God right here, is one of the central contrasts that shapes the book. Now, because the book comes out of my own journey, and because I began the book autobiographically, I want to be autobiographical with you for a few minutes. And I want to move into that by commending to you an exercise that I did myself uh, the first time some seven or eight years ago now, and it was very fruitful. Um, and my wife and I have done a number of retreats where we put people through this exercise, and uh, they also report that it's been very illuminating. The exercise begins with the invitation to try to get in touch with your earliest childhood memories associated with God. If you can get back to your <coughs> excuse me, if you can get back to your preschool years, that's great when you do this exercise on your own. But however far back you can get, your earliest childhood associations with God. And then to track them through late childhood, into adolescence, into young adulthood and so forth, uh, to try to get in touch with uh, how similar or dissimilar the way you think of God now is from how you thought of God as a child. Uh, whether you went through a period of agnosticism or atheism, or whether that might still describe uh, to some extent where you are. Uh, let me add one further comment about that exercise. When my wife and I have done that, and um, put people in small groups, and they talk about it and all of that kind of stuff, we then have followed that on with the question, uh, have you had an experience or experiences which you think of as experiences of God. The first time we did this was with a retreat with a group of Episcopalians, our own church, and we were um, a little bit gun-shy almost about asking that question because we were afraid that most people would have very little to say. These were Episcopalians after all. And, and um, we were surprised to um, discover, and this has been a consistent pattern when we've done this since, that roughly 80% of the people had an experience that they immediately identified as an experience of God, and when we put them in small groups to talk about that, 
we had a very difficult time getting them back out of those small groups and we also heard from them that they had never been asked that question before in a church setting and never been given an opportunity to talk about it. But to stay with uh, the real point of the exercise right now, which is trying to get in touch with your earliest childhood memories of God. When I did this myself a number of years ago, I got in touch with many things, and I, I share a number of those memories in the opening chapter of the book, hymns and so forth. But what I want to um, um, select out from those memories tonight is my earliest visual image of God, namely the visual image that would come into my mind when I thought about God as a preschooler. And when I was, say, four or five years old, which is as far back as I can remember about this, Whenever I prayed the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, or otherwise visualized God, the face of Pastor Thorson, the pastor of the Lutheran Church in which I grew up, would come into my mind. Now, I knew that Pastor Thorson wasn't God, even as a preschooler. If you had asked me, is Pastor Thorson God, I would have said no. But whenever I thought of God, I saw Pastor Thorson. He was a... Um, uh, gray-haired man, rather wavy gray hair as I remember, wore a simple black robe. We were part of that branch of Lutheranism which didn't believe in any ornamentation or stoles or anything like that for clergy. It's thus rather ironic that I now find myself an Episcopalian with a wife who has a closet full of ecclesiastical garments and so forth, but that's fine, that's fine. In my memory, he's a very big man. I was therefore startled when my oldest sister found a family picture, um, uh, this is last summer I think when she showed it to me, that has a picture of Pastor Thorson with my mom and dad and my two sisters. He in fact was quite a small man, shorter than my sisters, shorter than my mom, but in my memory he was a big man. I also remember him as an old man, though now I realize that he was younger than I am now, but so it goes but a gray-haired, older man in a black robe. Now, he was a perfect image for what I will be calling in this lecture the God of supernatural theism. It's an anthropomorphic image of God, that is an image of God which uh, thinks of God in human-like form, and thus I imaged God as a person and thought of God as a person-like being out there somewhere. He was also male, of course, though I didn't appreciate the significance of that at the time. And thus my early childhood image of God was that God was a supernatural male person out there, a perfect image for the stereotypical or cliched old man in the sky. And then I remembered one more thing about Pastor Thorson when I did this exercise again, maybe three or four summers ago now. Namely, I remembered that he was a finger shaker. And finally, the interventionist dimension of my childhood notion of God also began to seem highly problematical. If God sometimes intervenes, as in the events reported in the biblical tradition or in stories of miraculous deliverance today, if God sometimes intervenes, 
how then does one account for events like the Holocaust or about TWA 800 blowing up in the sky, which happened not far from here? That is, if one has an interventionist model of God, how does one account for the non-interventions? If God could have intervened to stop the Holocaust but didn't, such a God, as Bishop Robinson said some 30 years ago, is morally intolerable. So for a variety of reasons, the supernatural interventionist model of God led me into initially agnosticism and then unbelief regarding that notion of God. And this leads me then to the second root concept that I want to talk about and that then I develop in the rest of the book, a um, foundational way of thinking about God. And the technical term for this is panentheism. And the middle syllable en is very important because it differentiates it from pantheism with which this notion is sometimes uh, confused and wrongly identified. Let me explain what panentheism is in two different ways. First of all, let me explain what this notion means by talking about the roots or the etymology of the word panentheism. It comes from three Greek words, pan means all or everything, as in the Pan-American games being the All-American games. Uh, the middle syllable en is a Greek preposition which means in, and of course the final part of the word theism comes from the Greek word theos, which means God. Panentheism thus means everything is in God. Pantheism, with which it is sometimes confused, simply identifies everything with God. God is everything or everything is God. Panentheism is saying everything is in God. Where are we in relationship to God? We are in God. Where is the universe in relationship to God? The universe is in God. So that God is not out there or somewhere else, but everything that is, is in God. Let me explain panentheism a second way by using two semi-technical terms from the history of Christian theology and philosophy, for that matter. And these two semi-technical terms are transcendence and immanence. I pronounce immanence oddly. Many people say immanence, and I don't need to explain why I pronounce it oddly, but it has an A in it, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E. Both of these terms are applied to God in the tradition. The transcendence of God means that God goes beyond everything. God is more than everything. Okay. The immanence of God, which has typically been underemphasized in Christian theology, especially at the popular level, the immanence of God means the presentness of God or the sacred in everything. Immanence comes from the Latin word manere, uh, which means to dwell within. We get the word mansion from manere, if that helps you to remember the notion. So the immanence of God really refers to the everywhere presentness of God. Now, if you speak only about the transcendence of God, what you get is supernatural theism. If God is only transcendent, then God is somewhere else. But 
the jewish and christian traditions have consistently throughout their history not just in the modern period but consistently throughout their history whenever they have spoken with serious intent to do theology they have affirmed both the immanence and the transcendence of god and if you affirm both what you get is panentheism so panentheism means god is right here that's the immanence of god as well as more than right here that's the transcendence of god let me come at this one more way because it's such an important notion when I'm trying to explain this to my students, I sometimes ask them to visualize diagramming God in relationship to the universe. Now, supernatural theism might represent the universe with, let's say, an oval. <clears throat> I mean, it's odd to talk about diagramming the universe, I know, but we can do this, right? Okay. Represent the universe with an oval, and then God becomes like a dotted circle or something outside of the oval, and the dotted circle, I suppose, is a way of representing that God isn't limited in a way, but nevertheless, God is outside of the oval. Panentheism would still represent the universe as an oval, but would then represent God or the sacred as a larger oval, again, perhaps dotted, that includes or incorporates the universe within God. Uh, the contemporary theologian Sally McFaig makes the point in only a slightly different way by speaking of the universe as the body of God. Material reality is the body of God, and God is the spirit that uh, inhabits that body, if you will, and is also more than that body. And thus panentheism speaks of God as the encompassing spirit in which everything that is, is. Now, why should one think of God with a panentheistic model? Uh, partly because the tradition has consistently said God is both transcendent and immanent. But also I argue that this way of thinking about God is both biblical and pointed to by the varieties of religious experience. Let me speak for a few minutes about the way we see this in the biblical tradition. And I'll grant at the beginning that in the biblical tradition, God is often spoken of as if God were a supernatural being out there. And take the Lord's Prayer as a classic example again, our Father who art in heaven. God is personified as somebody who is in heaven. Or language about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. If you take that language somewhat literally, uh, God is a person like being somewhere else and Jesus is now with God. And even the ascension story suggests that kind of thing. Jesus ascends in order to be with God who is up there or out there. So the biblical tradition frequently can speak and does speak of God as a supernatural being who is somewhere else. And this is the natural language of worship and devotion, this kind of personification of the sacred. But in addition to that, the Bible can speak of God as being everywhere present and as being present uh, in nature and in persons. A few examples of that. Uh, there's this wonderful phrase in the Hebrew Bible, um, uh, the whole earth is filled with the glory of God, and the Hebrew word for glory, kavod, 
the kavod of God, the glory of God is the radiant presence of God. The whole earth is filled with the radiant presence of God. God is also as being present in people, in Moses, for example, and in Jesus, as well as in lesser figures in the biblical tradition. The presence of God is also suggested by the sacred name of God in the story of Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. That passage uh, is translated in most English Bibles as, you know, Moses asks, what is your name? And in most English Bibles, the answer is, I am who I am. Um, is that Popeye theology, by the way? I am who I am. But anyway, no, okay, okay, okay. <clears throat> Sometimes these things just come into my head, you know, okay. And, uh, uh, and people have tried to figure out, what does that mean? Does it mean anything at all? Does it mean, as uh, Karen Armstrong suggests, the same thing as the Hebrew phrase, they went where they went? Meaning, I have no idea. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, Martin Buber, uh, the great Jewish scholar, uh, one of the two greatest Jewish religious scholars of this century, I think, uh, suggests that the right way to translate Exodus 3.14 is not, I am who I am, but I will be present as I will be present. And then Buber comments, the very name of God suggests that God is the presence who is present in every now and every here. Yet another place in the biblical tradition where we find this panentheistic notion of God is uh, that great psalm, the 139th psalm. And I'll read part of that psalm to you as a way of uh, making this point. <clears throat> it's familiar to many of you, I know. And the you in the psalm, of course, is God. The psalmist is addressing God. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You go before me and behind me and lay your hand upon me. And then the psalmist asks, Where can I go from your spirit? Or whither can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the center of the earth, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. And notice what the psalmist is doing. The psalmist is imagining the three-story universe of the ancient world. Whether I go up to the top story in heaven, whether I go down to the bottom story in Sheol, whether I go to the furthest most ends of the earth, you are there. How can it be that no matter where one goes, God is there? Because we are in God and therefore it's impossible to be outside of the presence of God. And finally, uh, one last um, um, biblical reference, a single verse from the New Testament, a line um, that Luke, uh, the author of the book of Acts, as well as the Gospel of Luke, um, a line that the author of Luke Acts puts into the mouth of Paul as he speaks to um, people in Athens. And it's this great verse in which Paul says about God, God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. 
And notice how the language of that verse works. God is the one in whom we are, in whom we live and move and have our being. Where are we in relationship to God? We are in God, which means that God is right here, as well as more than right here. Finally, I also talk about the evidence from religious experience. This way of thinking about God is grounded in certain kinds of experience. There are experiences of the sacred, of the holy, that lead to this way of speaking about God. And the most dramatic of these experiences are ecstatic experiences. Ecstatic experiences, ecstasy means to be out of one's ordinary consciousness, out of one's ordinary way of being. These experiences in their most dramatic form therefore involve non-ordinary states of consciousness, or if it's not too much 60s talk, altered states of consciousness. And these non-ordinary states of consciousness have been studied by many people. Um, one of the classic studies is still William James from the beginning of this century, the varieties of religious experience. And I'm just going to list for you, without uh, much expansion at all, uh, eight different kinds of um, non-ordinary states of consciousness in which people have felt that they have experienced the sacred. These include visions, where there is a vivid subjective sense of momentarily seeing into another level of reality. Shamanic journeys from the noun shaman, a shaman is one who not only sees into another level of reality, but has a vivid subjective sense of entering that other level of reality, even journeying in that other level of reality. There are two different kinds of mystical experiences that scholars speak of. There are extrovertive mystical experiences. This means simply eyes open mystical experiences in which we see the same world we always see, but it's as if it's momentarily transfigured with light shining through everything. We may see bushes that burn without being consumed, filled with the radiant presence of the sacred. And there are eyes closed mystical experiences. These are introvertive mystical experiences. These typically occur in a state of uh, meditation or contemplation. And here there is a sense of descending to a deeper level of oneself where the distinction between oneself and the sea of being that oneself opens out into at its deepest level, uh, where that distinction becomes uh, very indistinct and perhaps even vanishes. Uh, by the way, mystical experiences of both kinds involve a softening or an opening of that little dome of the ego that we spend most of our life in. You, you know what I mean? Like my ordinary experience of the world is that I'm in here and you all are out there. Okay, and it's like I walk around in this little thing and sometimes it
down this little thing and sometimes it feels as hard as a guard all shield and sometimes not quite so hard but in any case that subject object distinction marks our ordinary experience in mystical experiences whether eyes open or eyes closed it's as if that dome of the ego momentarily falls away or becomes very porous and we experience our connectedness with everything and a real reduction of that subject-object distinction that marks our ordinary awareness. Enlightenment experiences such as that reported of the Buddha fall into the category of um, these ecstatic experiences of the sacred. Near-death experiences with which I think all of you are familiar from reading if nothing else uh, you know, those experiences in which a person um, near or at clinical death, as it were, uh, has a vivid sense of journeying through a tunnel and experiencing a being of light and so forth. If you're familiar with Abraham Maslow's peak experiences, they also are an example of this kind of experience, or Martin Buber's I-Thou moments or I-You moments. Now, I describe all of those experiences at greater length in the book. Here I want simply to point out that people who have these experiences regularly report, in William James's language, that they are noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C. What James means by that is that people who have these experiences regularly report that they came to know something they didn't know before. It's not just that they felt wonderful or felt different. It's not just a feeling, they would say, though these experiences frequently are accompanied by feelings of joy and bliss and gratitude and so forth. But they came to know something they didn't know before. And what they have come to know is the way things really are, namely that the sacred is and is all around us. The point, if the sacred can be experienced, then the sacred is in some sense right here and not elsewhere. How would thinking of God this way affect our understanding of the religious life or the Christian life? Let me address that question and bring this first talk to a close by telling you a story. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, I don't need to tell you where the story goes. I can just tell you the story. Okay. Um, every year at Oregon State University where I teach, I teach a uh, section of uh, Intro to Bible. It's a lower division course. And um, um, each year about 20% of the students who sign up for that course do so because they've either grown up in a church and a home where Bible reading was taken very seriously and they already know their Bibles fairly well, or they're recent converts to a conservative kind of Christianity uh, that is found in campus movements like Campus Crusade for Christ or Navigators or, or whatever. Okay? And they're taking the course because they think it's really neat that you can get academic credit for reading the Bible. Of course, they're horrified once they get in there, but so it goes. <laughs> and, and because I know that, that every year about 20% of the students are there for that reason, I spend the whole first class period very carefully and clearly explaining the vantage point from which the course is taught. 
and that the vantage point is the academic discipline of biblical scholarship and I tell them about the 200 year history of that discipline and that the academic discipline of biblical scholarship sees the Bible as a human product, the product of two ancient cultures, two ancient communities, not as a divine product and that this may be quite different from what they've heard before or what they've grown up with and you don't have to accept this way of looking at the Bible to take the course but you have to be willing to enter into this way of seeing the Bible or you're going to do terribly on your exams and so forth, you know. So, so I, I try to explain that really carefully the first day so that if people want to get out, they, they can and still get into another course. Well, even though I explain that very carefully, it still takes about the first two weeks or so of the class for it really to sink in. And so the first two weeks, there's a fair amount of squabbling going on back and forth between some of the more articulate conservative students and, 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 and me as the prof. And, and, you know, it's kind of interesting, that whole exchange and whatnot. Well, one year when I was teaching this course, I happened to have a very bright Muslim engineering student in the class. He was a senior simply needed humanities credit, this fit his schedule, and so he decided to take this course, and he was listening to the stuff going on for the first couple of weeks, and then um, uh, after about the first two weeks, he came up to me after class one day and said, I think I'm beginning to understand what's going on here. And then he said, you, meaning me, he said, you're saying that the Bible is like a lens through which we see God, and they, meaning the conservative students, they're saying that it's important to believe in the lens. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's what I'm saying, you know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, let me apply this to where we are at the end of this first talk. You can expand that story to two very different ways of seeing the Christian tradition. One is that being a Christian is about believing in the tradition. The other way that one might think of being a Christian is being a Christian means living within the tradition. That is, letting the tradition be a lens through which we see the sacred, or to change the image only slightly, letting the tradition be an icon, an icon is a sacred painting, and the theology of the icon suggests that it's not only that you meditate upon the icon as a sacred image, and through that image see the sacred, but that God also sees you through the icon, okay? to let the tradition be an icon that mediates the sacred to us. And so the image of the Christian life to which this panentheistic model of God leads and these comments about living within the tradition leads is uh, the Christian life is not about believing in a God out there, but about entering into a relationship with the sacred who is right here and living within a tradition which mediates the reality of that sacred to us. Indeed, to sum up the vision of the Christian life that flows out of this in three short sentences, God is real, right here as well as more than right here. Second statement, 
the religious life or the Christian life is about entering into a relationship with the sacred who is right here. And thirdly, that relationship can and will change your life. And that's the understanding of God and the Christian life that I will be developing further tomorrow. Thank you very much. Let me suggest that we move into the question and response period in a very particular way. I'm not sure if those are hour and a half cushions or not. So what I was going to suggest is that in silence, and the silence is important, uh, during the silence you might want to think about what you might want to ask about or comment about, but that in silence we take a one-minute standing-in-place stretch break. Okay? So I'll be the timer. Well, what would you like to ask about or add by way of comment of your own? And uh, I'll, if, if I'm not sure the question is carried to all of you, I'll repeat the, the question before responding to it. Yes, please. Given that God is omnipresent, which uh, the question asker has uh, thought for a long time, um, how would I speak of communing with God? That's, that's really the subject of my final lecture tomorrow afternoon, so I'm trying to figure out whether I want to say anything about it right now or just say that's what um, tomorrow afternoon is about. Um, Uh, let me just meant do, do this much in response to your question. Um, I, I will be talking about, I, in the book, I talk about 13 different collective practices that the religious traditions, including the Christian and Jewish traditions, have developed to help us commune with God. And I won't try to do any of that right now. Um, but let me just respond this way. Um, I think for most people, the most accessible and common way is um, simply talking to God. Now it may sound strange, but if we take seriously that God, in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is the beyond in our midst, or if we take seriously the words that Carl Jung had carved above the entry to his house in Zurich so that both he and his clients or patients would pass through that doorway every day. The words are now on Jung's tombstone. The words in English are, he had them done in Latin, the words in English are, bidden or not bidden, God is present. You know, if we take all of that seriously, that God is a reality who is right here, then God can be addressed as the you who is right here. And one might feel silly doing that if one has never done it before, and one, one might wonder if uh, there's really anything there to be addressed, I suppose, and one might wonder if one will ever hear any response and all of that. 
but if one takes seriously that the sacred is right here and that the sacred is a you and not an it that is the sacred is a presence and not an object then uh, addressing God in that way minimally conveys to the person doing so uh, um, It, it, it's like in the very act of doing that, you're taking seriously that there may indeed be a reality there to be addressed. And I think it begins to affect you. you know. But I will say more about, a lot more about that in my afternoon lecture tomorrow. Yes, I'll go out there. Let me, let me stay with you for a moment and ask you a question about what you've just reported. Um, when as a child you thought of God as being up, up there in the corner, kind of, kind of watching you or, or whatever, was that a uh, comforting thought? Was it a somewhat anxiety-producing thought or some mixture of the two? Yeah. Because God knew what you were doing? <laughs> Because God knew what you were doing and thinking and so forth. I mean, I mean, was was that where it, the reason it produced? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. And but but it but it sounds like it's a variation of the finger shaking God. God is the big the big eye in the sky. And I quip in the book, he's like that secular saint about whom we sing. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. And, and I, when I think back, especially when I was really young, I don't know if, it was, if God was a threatening presence at all, but certainly by late childhood and adolescence, the omniscience of God, that God knows everything, was a profoundly threatening thing for me because it meant that God knew my impure thoughts, couldn't hide anything from God. And, and again, there's a, 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 a irony is almost too weak a word. There's an irony in that, though, because the omniscience of God uh, can, in fact, be a very, very comforting notion. You know, one of the Psalms says, you know me right well, you know? Uh, um, I made you, I know you, you are mine. And that threatening kind of thing that, that, that God knew everything about me. Yeah. So it got all tied up with performance model and so forth. Okay. Yes, please.
let me repeat the question if the notion of an interventionist god is a real difficulty for the supernatural theistic model isn't the problem of terrible things happening in a sense an even greater problem for the panentheistic model if god is everywhere including right here let me come at it this way it's the interventionist part of the supernatural theistic model that's the problem for me at that point that god from somewhere else intervenes in the natural process to change the result now within a panentheistic model i let go of the notion of intervention i mean god in part because god is not somewhere outside of the process and therefore able to intervene within the process but that god is involved in the process is part of the process the process happens within god that doesn't give me any explanation at all as to why things like the holocaust can happen or all of the individual random tragedies that come into our lives that never make the newspapers you know and okay so there's a full stop there a sentence then i go on okay then i would go on to say so i don't believe in intervention period then i would go on to say i'm utterly convinced that paranormal things happen now by paranormal i mean it's some people think it's a waffle word or a weasel word but paranormal means simply something happening that we have no idea what the explanatory mechanism is i think paranormal healings happen uh and and i have to think of what else i'd want to put in the list but let me just stay with that one i think paranormal healings happen healings for which we have no explanation one of my problems with interventionism is that it tries to give an explanation for that god intervened and healed that person that's an explanation and i would rather say reality with a capital r is profoundly mysterious with a capital m and beyond our comprehension the most we can do is to come up with sort of rough and ready road maps of it that enable us to manipulate it to some extent and so forth and i'm thinking of the of science and technology there so i would say things happen for which we have no explanatory mechanism but the explanatory mechanism that i refuse to go to is the interventionist one then the last comment i would make is that for the panentheistic model it means that god is present with us in the midst of all of that which may or may not be an immediate source of comfort but if you take that seriously in the midst of all of that in some sense god even partakes of or undergoes that suffering so i don't have a good explanation for what's sometimes called the problem of evil or the problem of undeserved suffering it's it's simply that i can't affirm the interventionist thing and it's not because i know the universe is a closed system of cause and effect that again is 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 too tight a rational explanation of things so paranormal stuff happens i have no idea why in my own case i offer prayers of petition and intercession because i think it's a way of caring for people seems like the right thing to do i have no idea if it does any good but it just seems the right thing to do so i don't have a knockdown drag out response for that but sort of 
the collection of thoughts that I've just spun out for you. Go way in the back. Mm -hmm. Okay, do I still use the word grace? And if, if I do, what does it mean uh, for me? Um, good question, and I don't think I address that in any of my lectures tomorrow. Um, the grace of God, and it was a very big word in my childhood because growing up as a Lutheran, you know, it's the watchword of the Reformation in a way, salvation by grace through faith, that we always shortened it to salvation by faith which kind of left the grace out, and now you're saved by believing the right way and so forth, but let that go for now. Um, um, what I understand grace to me is that God accepts us and loves us apart from any performance on our part, apart from any measuring up on our part. Um, the finest, for me anyway, the finest intellectual articulation of that that I've ever run into is in one of Paul Tillich's sermons, which some of you may know. It's his sermon, You Are Accepted. That's the title of the sermon. It's in his volume, The Shaking of the Foundations. And You Are Accepted uh, that's, that's, in a way, that's the meaning of grace. Uh, you are accepted apart from works of the law. And if that sounds like archaic language, you are accepted apart from measuring up. You are accepted apart from um, strong faith. You are accepted apart from believing the right things. And Tillich, as he moves through that sermon, makes clear what many other thinkers in the tradition have said, too, that if you take radical grace seriously it means God's unconditional acceptance of us within a panentheistic model I would understand that as meaning and it could even mean this within a supernatural theistic model too for that matter but within a panentheistic model I understand that to mean that God accepts us and loves us already unconditionally whether we know that or not believe that or not and of course, if we don't know that or don't believe that, then we're very likely to continue to live our lives as some kind of measuring up to the voices within our heads or the voices of culture or whatever. But if we see that, that God accepts us just as we are unconditionally, it will release us from that life of anxious striving and measuring up and so forth. So for me, um, Radical grace, unconditional grace fits fits very nicely into that panentheistic model. As I say, it could fit with a supernatural um, theistic model too. Yeah. my own. Sure, the question is about ecstatic experiences. Uh, would I be willing to risk sharing any of my own? Um, I will with one or two 
prologue remarks. Um, the first is that I don't think the Christian life or the religious life is about having these. That is, I don't think it's the goal or the aim of the Christian life or the religious life, like somehow one has um, moved further along the path or has really arrived if one has these kinds of things. As, as um, Houston Smith, whose name many of you know, uh, once said in response to a similar question, that finally what this is all about is not altered states, but altered traits. Okay, a transformation of our being and not so much uh, these peak experiences. Um, and the second prologue remark I would make is that uh, these experiences are a real gift uh, and, and uh, they're, they're not at all the product of, of something that, that somebody does and and if you haven't had one, or, or you know, yeah, if you haven't had one in your adult life, you shouldn't feel deficient. <laughs> okay, okay. So I mean, I want to issue those cautions. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay. Now, there was a two-year period of my life in my mid-thirties where I had maybe mm, half a dozen of these uh, that were foundationally transformative for me. And uh, since then, I've had uh, glimmers from time to time. Uh, I also have had some remarkable experiences uh, with music, ecstatic, and I'm not a performer, I'm, a, I'm an appreciator of music, ecstatic experiences with music that seem to belong in the same ballpark. But, but the one I'm going to tell you about is one I had about two years ago, and this came after uh, round numbers, a dozen years or so, of, of there not being any uh, really exceptional experience. And it was um, an eyes-open mystical experience, an experience of extroverted mysticism. And as William James remarks, these are ineffable, that is, very difficult to describe very well in words, and after you've done it in words, you feel like, oh, I don't know that that really did it. But let me let me try. Um, to say a little bit about the circumstances, uh, my wife and I take educational pilgrimages to Israel um, on, on average about once a year, and it, it's out of uh, the cathedral in Portland where my wife is a priest. And we were coming back from one of these trips and uh, um, we're um, uh, flying from uh, Tel Aviv to New York. It happened to be a daytime flight. Uh, and uh, we're about halfway through the flight. I happen to be reading a collection of short stories by Wallace Stegner. I'm not sure how relevant that is. But as I was sitting there uh, finishing this short story by Stegner, I, I noticed the light in the cabin subtly begin to change. I mean, uh, the light began to change, so I, I looked up. Oh, I need to include one more prologue remark. Um, on this flight, seated a few rows in back of us, and I don't normally speak this way, but it, it was the ugliest man I've ever seen in my life. And I, I, I typically don't go around evaluating people. And, and um, 
you know, he had stubbly beard and his, he wasn't deformed really, but he was just repulsive looking. Plus, he would go to the John about every half hour. So about every half hour, he's coming down the aisle walking towards me and I'd look up and there, there he'd be. And, and he was so ugly that I found myself when I was aware that he was going to come down the aisle, I would avert my eyes so I didn't have to look at him. Okay. Anyway, I finished this. The light begins to change. And, and so I look up and, and it's as if the light in the cabin is uh, sort of suffused with a kind of uh, yellow or goldenness. And everything looks exquisitely beautiful. The fabric on the back of the airline seat in front of me, um, the um, uh, faces of all the people around me. Um, uh, the experience goes on for about 40 minutes altogether. The food arrives uh, that's being served for lunch, and, and I, I don't even touch it. I just look at it, and it's just extraordinarily beautiful. My face is all wet from weeping. I mean, I'm not sobbing out loud but it's just you know and and I'm just kind of overwhelmed with how beautiful everything is and how if I were to die at that very moment it'd be fine and and also I felt like um, like I, I was I was seeing how things really were if one looked at things without the domestication provided by habituated perception and categories and so forth and in the midst of all of this, this man came walking down the aisle again, and even he looked beautiful. And Marianne, my wife, was sitting next to me while all this was happening, and she became aware real early on uh, that something was happening. She had the good sense not to say anything to me, and I had the good sense also not to start chattering about it in my head, like, oh my, this is wonderful, because I knew if that little voice came on, it would go away. And, and afterwards, uh, Marianne um, uh, said to me, she said, well, she said, I, I thought maybe you had been given a vision that this plane was going to crash in 10 minutes and you were looking around one last time and everything, you know. But, but that, that introduces an element of whimsy into it that I, I really didn't mean to, to end with. Um, let me recite a poem from William Butler Yeats that I also quote in the book. It's a nine-line poem, and it's one of the most economical descriptions of an extroverted, mystical experience that I've ever run into. And the first five or six lines describe the setting, and the experience itself is only described in the last uh, three lines, I think. It uh, goes like this. Um, and, and this makes the point that these experiences happen not only in nature, might happen on an airline or that one, but also in cities. This one happens in a London coffee shop. Yeats writes, My fiftieth year had come and gone. I sat, a solitary man, in a crowded London shop, an empty cup on the marble tabletop. While on the street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed, and twenty minutes more or less, so great my happiness that I was blessed and could bless. And those last two lines, so great my happiness that I was blessed and I could bless. Because there is this strong sense of everything looking so precious and so beautiful that one loves everything, even as one is filled with, um, uh, well, peace that passes all understanding. I mean, 
that's what that phrase is about, I'm convinced, or, or, or bliss, to use another one of those somewhat cliched words. Um, the experiences in my 30s were all of them um, experiences of transfiguration of nature, light shining through everything and so on. Well, um, that's maybe an odd note to end on. I didn't realize the description would take that long, but I do want to honor time commitments. And so, noticing that it's 9 o'clock, let me simply thank you all for being here tonight, and I trust that I'll see a good number of you tomorrow. And um, some of the things that weren't talked about tonight would still probably be appropriate tomorrow. Oh, one last remark. I'm also willing um, to, to uh, um, sign books and bless holy articles or whatever else, but, but, uh, but, uh, but, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, to sign books uh, afterwards tonight during coffee breaks tomorrow before anytime you see me when I'm not obviously doing something, I'm fair game, okay? So uh, sleep well tonight, and I, I hope I'll see many of you tomorrow. So bye for now.